up, Mr. Scott. Permission to come aboard, sir. Welcome to Now Playing's Star Trek Retrospective Series. We here at Now Playing will be reviewing all of the previous installments of the Star Trek movie franchise, going at warp speed towards the new J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie coming to theaters May 8, 2009. Bringing you the perspective of a Star Trek novice, a casual Star Trek movie fan, and a former hardcore Trekker, we will be providing spoiler-filled critiques of this long-running movie franchise. Today we're talking about Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, starring William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Kim Cattrall, and Christopher Plummer, directed by Nicholas Meyer. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A., Arnie, South of Chicago. All right, and Arnie, I think we should start like we started episode four of this series, talking about the dedication. Yes, this movie was dedicated to Gene Roddenberry, Star Trek creator, who died in, I believe it was October of 91, and this movie came out in November, December of 91. I have an interesting story about Roddenberry's death, actually. I just assumed Star Trek V killed him. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the interesting story Arnie was going to tell you. Just blew it. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I have been to a Star Trek convention. I've only gone to one. Brent Spiner, who played Data in The Next Generation, we'll talk about him next show, was the guest of honor. And there were people dressed up as Klingons and people who would never pass Starfleet fitness tests dressed up as Starfleet officers. (laughs) I bought the tickets. It was up in Chicago. I had my godparents driving me because I didn't have a license. It was all set. And four days before the convention, Roddenberry dies. Can you imagine the pallor it cast over the entire convention? It was thousands of people there, dead, silent in every room. There was no crowd rumble. There was no noise. The Q&As were barely amplified. You could hear everything. I mean, I was still having a fairly good time. I was glad they didn't cancel it because I had all my plans. But yeah, that was my memory of Roddenberry's death. The one time I spent quite a bit of money to do this and... Mm. Wow, that does sound like a bad show. I'm wondering, were people just in shock and in grief? Or were they presuming that this was the end of Trek because Roddenberry was gone? I believe it was the shock and grief because it had come out pretty quickly that he'd been ailing for a while and Trek The Next Generation had been going on without his day-to-day involvement. But he was seen as the captain of the ship. He had steered everything. We now know from the internet and everything that he wasn't very involved in the movies, but he did the original series. He brought back The Next Generation and was actively involved in that and doing interviews and publicity. And, you know, I think when you're at that level of fandom when you're wearing an outfit you feel a closeness that doesn't exist with its creators i think you're right a lot of fans of a lot of different franchises who certainly feel that sort of feeling when uh the creator would pass away so did he see a cut of this movie before he passed away 
I'm not sure if he saw a cut. He was involved in the script and didn't like certain things, which I will mention a little later. And I bet I can guess what they are. I can't wait to talk about. Just briefly, does it involve the uh, murder mystery and the person responsible for the murder mystery? It does. I'll, yep. just, I'll spill the beans now. The murderer was going to be Savick. I knew it! I knew it! <laughs> I feel like Kirk right now, clenching my fist. Fire! I knew it. I'm so glad I deduced that. Fact is, he didn't want it to be her, so they created the new Romulan, and Ugh. Nicholas Meyer was really, really pissed about it and said, I created Savick. If he wants to start saying what happened to that character, he can return all the checks for the money I've made him with the previous movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk about about this more so why don't we start with a plot synopsis first then we'll get into that arnie the starship enterprise a and her crew are three months away from retirement like danny glover in every lethal weapon film <laughs> but are they too old for this <laughs> yes we all saw star trek 5 that is without question <laughs> But the primary moon of the Klingon homeworld exploded, creating a situation where the Klingon people would be extinct in 50 years, if not aided by the Federation. Ironically, and I use that term correctly, Kirk and company are sent to accompany the Klingon Chancellor to Earth for peace talks. And I say ironic because Kirk and crew hate the Klingons and Kirk's son was killed by the Klingons three movies ago. They meet with the Klingons, and then after the dinner, when the Klingons have returned to their ship, the Starship Enterprise fires phantom torpedoes at the Starship. I say phantom because it looks to the crew of the Enterprise like they're not firing, but the torpedoes are coming from the Enterprise. And when the Klingon ship is in disarray, two humans beam aboard and assassinate the Chancellor. This is seen as an act of war. The Klingons begin to attack the Enterprise, and trying to make peace, Kirk immediately surrenders himself and McCoy to the Klingons, and they are convicted for the murder and sent away to a prison mine. Meanwhile, while on orders from Starfleet to return to Earth, Spock delays, and a murder investigation begins to find out who really fired the torpedoes and who killed the Chancellor. Long story short, the bigotry of humans against Klingons and the bigotry of Klingons against humans caused an alliance between those who don't don't want peace, including new Vulcan science officer Valeris, also known as Mannequin, Kim Cattrall. <laughs> and boy, was she wooden here. <laughs> a cloaked Klingon bird of prey fired the torpedoes, and Valeris had two Enterprise crew members beam aboard and perform the assassination. Valeris is caught. Kirk and McCoy are rescued after a fight with a shape-shifting supermodel. <laughs> they race to Earth at Warp Factor 9 barely stopping that guy from Benson from shooting that guy from RoboCop in that 70s show who happens to be the Federation president. And thus, all is well and peace is made with the Klingon Empire, which we all knew would happen because this was coming out after Star Trek The Next Generation where we are already at peace with the Klingons. Great segue into the plot of the movie and why I love the plot of this movie so much. And I will speak first on this. I'm not sure if you two agree. Knowing that the Klingons make peace... In The Next Generation, having the movie where that starts, I thought was a brilliant turn. Not only is it cool because we know the Klingon Empire has united with the Federation, but politically speaking, at this time, perestroika was all the rage. So I believe you told me off the air, Arnie, that the Klingons were the Russians in the 60s and the Enterprise was supposed to be the USA kind of thing. So now they're all coming together. I thought it was a really clever idea to have that as a central plot. It just made sense to have this plot now. Well, more to the point, Brock, 
this is a direct response to Chernobyl. The moon of Praxis is the Klingons Chernobyl. I'm wow, I'm really like you guys are pushing me back to my college Russian history class. Chernobyl and the fact that Reagan essentially bankrupted Russia by forcing them to uh, spend more than they had for nuclear weapons, ended the Cold War in what, 87, Gorbachev began making those reforms before Russians were our friends. Did you guys like the plot of this movie? No. <laughs> Arnie, why not? I mean, I like the murder mystery part too. We'll get to that in a minute. But the overall peace plot, why wasn't that interesting to you? Because I like my Star Trek with a bit of action. And immediately when you have the entire plot be diplomacy, negotiation, and peace, yeah, that is a big part of Star Trek. You know, Star Trek is exploration. Star Trek is peace. This isn't supposed to be a warship enterprise. It's a science vessel as well. But yawn. I just find the quest for peace not as fulfilling as the quest for conquest. I guess I'm more along the side of the Klingons who want to keep the war going. We know where this is going to end. It harkens back to the heavy-handed, overly moralistic episodes of the 60s. I mean, sure, the Klingons were always a stand-in for the Russians, but did you have to make it this obvious? Sure, it's a great idea, and it's a story that could have been told well, but you said you liked the murder mystery. Again, I say yawn. That murder mystery was no mystery. When I was watching this movie, I didn't think it was a mystery. The very first time I'm sitting there, there. I'm like, okay. I didn't realize it was supposed to be a big whodunit. I see it now. I didn't see it then. Yeah, it's like Star Trek CSI where you've got a bunch of buffoons literally raiding every closet looking for an outfit and too much techno babble. No, I didn't like it. Stuart? Well, you know, I liked the idea of it, but you really needed someone behind the camera that was going to give you Agatha Christie and not Murder, She Wrote. I mean, this is a geriatric old mystery. Angela Lansbury or Matlock puts more tension in you than the way that this thing is constructed. And it is, I think, as Arnie pointed out, central to the failure of it and something we've already alluded to is the fact that we know from the get-go who has done this because someone on the bridge is responsible and there's only one new person on the bridge and everyone else is packing it up and retiring so who is it going to be? I mean, it's staring you in the face. I remember turning to you, Arnie, in theaters and saying, you know, it's Kim Cattrall and you kind of grimacing because we had a little rivalry going. I should offer a little backstory. This was the film that I used to break Arnie from Trek because after Star Trek V, he was was still trying to spend a lot of money for it. He was still trying to commit to it, but I felt like it wasn't making him happy, and I certainly didn't want to talk about Star Trek as much as you did. So, I begrudgingly went to Six, secretly hoping it would be as bad as it is, so that you would finally have to cede that you did not want to spend any more time with it. I think it worked. Here's how well it worked. This is the first time I saw this movie since we saw it opening night, 1991. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'll, I'll give you this, Brock. I agree. I think it was a clever thing to make it relevant to our political times by making the Russian parallels clear. I mean, you know, Nimoy even has a line that it's a Vulcan proverb that even Nixon can go to China. I thought that right. was funny. It's funny. It felt like it should have been relevant, but then in the execution, I have many, many, many problems. Before we get on to the problems, I just want to say that I saw this on videotape when it came out on video. I didn't go to the theater to see this one, I don't believe, and I loved it then, and I haven't seen it since that first time either. It's only the second time I've ever seen this movie. 
And I have to agree with both of you that you know who did it the whole time. So to me, I always thought of this one as Columbo. You know, if you know Columbo TV show, if I'm dating myself at all, Columbo, you see the murderer commit the murder, and the fun of it is watching Columbo figure it out. So what they do with the murder mystery here is you have, you have to find the magnetic boots, you have to find the spacesuits, and Spock figures it out logically. And then they try to throw you little curveballs here and there because we all know where it's going. Like for that wonderfully fun, cute, quick scene with the blaster, why don't you just vaporize it? And everyone like in turn comes, did a blaster go off? Did a blaster go off? And they have a second scene when you have the magnetic boots are found in the locker of a guy who has big claw feet who could never wear the boots. Those kind of little things, those little kind of scenes that make it a little bit more fun. So you have to set the trap up at the end for the murderer. And yes, I know, it's murder she wrote in its simplicity. But on the other hand, it's really fun to give all these characters all these little scenes and fun things to do. We talk a lot about how a lot of the supporting characters don't get a lot to do in these movies. And this time, everybody got to do a little bit of something and it was fun to enjoy these characters everyone got their little moments and stuff and it was lots of fun no one was more happy than me that Sulu finally got his ship <laughs> we finally get the Excelsior to have a point Sulu is there I really love that I don't know that I felt like everyone had something to do I felt some of the humor which was so nice in part four and so effortless here was pretty labored I mean love you Ahura but your your comedy chops doing the Klingon resuscitation not uh, not a highlight. Better than the fan dance. I guess that's why I think Trek 6 is considered a success. However, whatever it didn't do, it is much, much better than Star Trek 5. Here's the problem for me is I think that the character dynamics were off because they took Kirk and Bones away for most of the movie. And so what you have is the rest of them kind of flailing, but there's not been a lot of interaction between, say, Sulu and Spock. And so that's, I think, why it's a little bit more labored. I did enjoy some of Chekhov's scenes, especially the shoe thing you were mentioning. But I agree with Stuart, the Uhura thing. Why do they even have books in the 23rd century? I don't have books now. I have an iPhone. <laughs> the book thing was, I thought, was quite humorous. Yeah, it was like Star Trek Four kind of groaner kind of jokes, old person jokes. But I, I didn't mind that scene. I thought it was, you know, the, the old translation gag, you know? I didn't mind it. Was it blazing a new trail in comedy? No. But I thought it was, you know, they had to get them in Klingon space. How are you going to do it? Well, these people are supposed to boldly go where no one has gone before. They need to blaze a trail somewhere. <laughs> And I feel like that trail is straight to the pasture. Did you guys not get the sense that Paramount couldn't wait to get these guys off the bridge? Like, you talk about that the fact that we already know going into it that this peace treaty is going to happen. I feel like the whole thing is constructed to say goodbye, good luck, good riddance to the original <laughs> crew. And I don't feel like it's an honorable way to go out. I feel like they tried to be respectful, but you could just see them just shoving them out and couldn't wait to get them out so that they could get the next generation in there, get some new blood, and have some excitement again. Because Trek 5 proved these people can't run, these people can't jog, these people can't climb mountains, these people cannot do the heavy lifting required of a science fiction series. But here's what's funny, Stuart, is you just hit on the one thing I really do like about this movie. And that's because I respect Trek and I respect its history. It was a swan song, but I felt, yeah, sure, there is the whole feeling the whole time that it 
it is a swan song. Now, are they being pushed out? Perhaps. I don't feel like that's conveyed in the film, but I definitely feel that this is the last hurrah, and I think it's a good one for them. I really love the cheesy end where they're all signing their names for end credits, and they all get their moment to sign their autograph rather than just have a type font. It gives them that moment. These are characters that at this point have been around for 25 years. Let them have it. That's what I liked about this movie is it gave them that. Sure, it brought up the old thing again about the Enterprise being decommissioned and Kirk being no longer a captain, but it felt like a nice, respectful way. And I actually like, while I dislike the whole plot on the asteroid or wherever they are mining dilithium, steal that from Star Wars much, Mines of Kessel, but I loved it because it was such a throwback to the 60s show where Kirk is in a fist fight with an alien on an obvious soundstage. I actually really got a good chuckle out of that. It was like... Like it was a scene right out of the 60s show, only with a curlier toupee. I completely agree with you. I love the ending of this movie. Yes, the ending on the bridge with Sulu's chair empty, completely empty on purpose. Everyone there on the bridge and then the autographs. And I've always loved that. And I feel completely about this movie, what you just said, how it really was a nice way to go out and fun. I'm glad you brought it up. Wow. You don't like the ending at all, Stuart? I want you to hear what you just said. You said the ending of this movie is fun. I felt like this was a funeral. I I mean, I think Paramount did a taxidermy job on this. It's like they shot him, they stuffed him, and they stuck him on the bridge and said, one last look, bam, we're out of here. I mean, it felt like a funeral. I could not say it was any less fun than anything I'd seen in Trek ever. Yeah, I felt like it was a really not fun way to go out. You want a fun way to go out? Go back to part four and just stop watching. That was a fun way to go out. This was not fun. Dreary. I felt the whole thing was a dreary, draggy, like Murder, She Wrote in Space on its worst night is what it felt like for me. The Murder, She Wrote series finale? Yes. It was a better finale for Angela Lansbury than it was for this crew. And I don't know. I, I think you're right, Arnie. Some of it is attributable to the fact that they're not all working together, that Kirk and Bones are off doing their own thing. But I also just sense a detachment from everyone. Kirk is never given a worse performance than here, even in part five. He's really bad. And everyone else just doesn't seem to care. You know what? Another thing that I just felt palpable was the look of this movie. They, it is so dark. And I know some of it's they're trying to go for mystery, the what in film school they'd call film noir look. But some of it just looks like, wow, they just can't afford lights. And it just felt like... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait. You're telling me the production values of this are worse than five and four and even parts of three? I think this thing was filmed much cleaner. And you, when you have a real director behind the camera, it makes a huge difference, especially with this kind of, as you called it, lightweight kind of movie. The way it was filmed, the way it was shot, at least that, for goodness sakes, no one's just standing there and walking towards the camera saying a line. It actually has momentum. I think the thing moves. You disagree, but didn't you see a difference in the quality? Didn't you feel like there was actually some money spent here? Even if there wasn't money spent here, did you feel it looked cheap? The only thing I thought looked cheap was a Superman trial uh, section with the spotlight down the middle. I thought everyone was going to say, guilty! Guilty! Like in Superman. Let me interject a couple things here. Okay. First of all, in the trial, those were wharf action figures in the back held up with popsicles. <laughs> I don't even have to say a word. Thank you, Arnie. <laughs> Second, I do feel that this film actually looked like it had some money behind it, but 
the director specifically said he felt the ship always had too many lights and he wanted a darker ship because he thought it should be more like a dark submarine. And so he did intentionally take away the lights. Okay. I hated the lighting scheme. I really, I, there's something about that lighting scheme that really put me off. And I'm like, what are they trying to hide? The fact that they're reusing costumes, that they don't have much money. Obviously, it was a step up from part five in production values. But no, I did not think this movie looked good. I didn't think it looked Star Trek. It looked like some dingy thing I didn't want to watch. Can I tell you what I didn't like about the look of it? The effects. It seemed like... You know, this was 1991, okay? I want you to think back to 1991. Put yourself there. Michael Jackson just came out with black or white. Morphing was all the rage. And what does this movie have? It has morphing. CGI was just coming into its own with Terminator 2. So let's put some CGI blood. It felt like they were trying to do every car commercial effect in the book. And it just looked so cheap. That Klingon blood, really cheap. Okay. That whole scene when they both captains are yelling fire at the Klingon bird of prey, you didn't like those special effects either? Oh, those were fine. I thought the space effects here were first rate. It was specifically any time they brought in ILM's computer division that I really wanted to go wretch in my popcorn bucket. Your proverbial one or the one you keep at your next to your television? <laughs> His spittoon. <laughs> I love the chaw. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, back in 1991, I loved the blood effect. I thought it was awesome. I especially liked the part when the gravity comes back and it goes splatter on the ground. I thought this time it looked too magenta, a little too bright, but I always loved that floating blood effect with the gravity being out. I thought it was really fun to shoot, see him shot, and it's like a lava lamp of blood comes out. I thought that was really cool then. I thought it was really cool now. I think you're being a little too cynical, a little too hard on the movie. I think we both know a lot about special effects and about the cool thing of the day was that kind of effect. Back in 1991, it wasn't as commonplace as it is now, and it was something we've seen before, but Trek used it. I think what's really great about those effects in this movie is because, it, A, it did show they weren't scared to sh spend a little bit of money on it. Secondly, and more importantly, it's about time Trek got with it effects-wise. Yeah, it's a Star Trek movie with some old people, but you know what? They could still bring a little bit of it here and there. In the effects part, I thought it showed. I also thought the murder scene was well filmed with the lighting, with the special effects. That whole sequence, I thought, was strong. And I thought the blood only helped to accentuate that. And the fact that you have gravity boots and that was factored into the mystery, I thought it all worked so well together. I'm so surprised to hear you thought it was a cheap effect. Back in 1991, that was not cutting edge, but it certainly wasn't a Clash of the Titans. Back in 1991, I didn't like it. My thought has always been, if you can't make it look real, don't do it. Don't do what the Sci-Fi Channel does with its every made-for-television movie and go, who cares if it looks like a freaking screensaver as long as it conveys the message. No, this looked cheap to me then. Huh, interesting. You know what? I'm going to go half and half here. I agree with Arnie. It looked cheap. It didn't look particularly good, but there was something very satisfying. At least it felt inventive that we were seeing floating blood globules. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I just like globules. I did have a lava lamp as a kid, and I, I like them. 
put a positive thing here, though. I do agree. It was an inventive idea. I like the idea of it. I just felt it was poorly executed in the effects region. And now that I've heard Brock say he liked the scene, I do like the way it was shot, the camera work. I think the floating effects were well done. It's simply every time that lava lamp blood was on the screen, all I could think of was literally a screensaver that came with a graphics card of mine, and it just pulled me so out of the movie, I couldn't even believe it. I felt, I guess, in that scene, the special effect was serving what was going on in the story, whereas when we see Amon on the, on the asteroid shifting her look, that felt like, oh, we got to get on this morphing thing because all the other sci-fi ones are doing it. And it did not have anything to do with the story, and that, I felt, was really a distraction. Although, I got to admit, I laughed when she became Kirk and that, had that whole exchange, I can't believe I kissed you, and then she joked, is that your lifelong ambition? <laughs> Anytime you dig on Shatner, I, I, I can laugh. Stuart, I completely agree with you about the usefulness of the effect versus just doing the effect for the effect's sake. I think you're dead on there. Why don't we talk about Iman then for a second, the whole plot with the prisoner helping Kirk escape. Now, of all the things that are really obvious to me in this movie, beyond the murder mystery, why couldn't Kirk in all his years figure out this person's helping him escape to kill him outside the prison? That's one thing to me that always has bothered me. Why couldn't Kirk figure that out? And, or did he? Yeah, particularly when it became obvious, when he knew that she had the ability to change shapes. It's like, okay, you ought to be suspicious here. Now, I know he had the thing on his back for Spock to beam him up, so maybe he was counting on it. Uh, I know he was supposed to escape, but I don't think that was the plan he was going for. If that was... I missed that. I think it was. I think that was what was conveyed when he punches her in the face. Is he's known all along, and it's time to take off his mask. That was my take. What I want to know is, how come they don't check anyone? He has a patch on his back. He, he went to prison. I know in our prisons, you're lucky if you don't get out with an anal probe. The Klingons just send you with the clothes on your bag and they never bother to check you for anything? <laughs> I don't have an answer for you. I felt like most of this was very unsatisfying, the whole banishment plot, particularly Bones. I'm like, what did he do? He didn't, he wasn't able to revive a Klingon because he had never operated or worked uh, on their anatomy before. That seems fair. I really, I don't know. Why was he being thrown to the wolves? It didn't make sense to me. The only thing fun that we get out of it at all is that we do have a cameo from Michael Dorn as Worf defending them to the uh, Klingons. Now, he's playing so. actually Worf's dad. Oh, oh, really? His actual dad? Yeah. I thought it was like some sort of like cousin or ancestor or something. Well, it might, it might be his uncle because it's Worf, son of Moog, but maybe it's his grandfather, Worf. But yeah, it's his ancestor. This is where my ignorance of the series is uh, becoming obvious, yeah. Meanwhile, Didn't... with the word son of Moog, if I wasn't married, I guaranteed I wasn't going to get a date for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of reusing, you guys mentioned reusing costumes, and now Michael Dorn's being repurposed here. Why on earth did they use David Warner again? Couldn't figure it out. What the hell? There's no other actor in Hollywood. I know he's under makeup this time, but it's the same actor. Who's David Werner? Uh, he was the Federation guy on the Planet of Peace in the last one. He was a human. And now they've just, yeah, they, it's, repurposed is a good word. They've just stuck some Klingon makeup on him and says, now he's a Klingon. As, I guess they were counting on the fact that we would not remember, go back to look at, or want to connect anything to part five. And I don't know, maybe he's good on set. Maybe he tells good 
good jokes. Well, it doesn't explain this away, but let me just say that Trek likes to keep it in the family because so many actors keep coming back. In this movie, I mentioned the guy from Benson. His name's Rene Arbujonis. If I pronounce that wrong, I don't care. He goes on to be Odo in Deep Space yes. Nine a year and a half later. And then he works with Shatner again in Boston Legal this century. And there's a guy in, I think, Trek 7 who plays just some background navigator. Or he might have been on the... He's in the bridge of the Enterprise B. Yeah, and he becomes a Vulcan. And the guy who plays uh, Sarek, the Vulcan ambassador Sarek in this movie, played a Klingon in part one. He was the head of the Klingon ship that V'ger destroys. They they do this. They have a cadre of actors they like and keep changing their name and putting on makeup. Okay, does that mean that maybe in the J.J. Abrams movie we'll finally see and understand why Christian Slater is aboard ship? Well, I could give you two answers for that one. I could give you the answer that was in the Star Trek fan magazine in 1991, and I can give you the answer that I read on the internet this week. In 1991, I read Christian Slater was such a fan of the series that he just wanted to be a part of it in any way he could. Now I read, I actually discovered why Christian Slater has a career. His mother is Mary Jo Slater, who is one of Hollywood's biggest casting people, and thought it would be good for him, convinced the producers, hey, this will bring in some more youth appeal by having this youth actor in there, and that's what happened. Right. But he's underlit. You don't even know it's Christian Slater. You can barely make it out. It's so quick. He does so nothing that it really leaves you just with a hole in the whole movie going, why is that there? That should not be there. And what's funny is it was actually scripted to be one of the characters on the bridge. The person playing the Uhura role on the Excelsior is Janice Rand, who we saw in Star Trek One as the transporter chief and was on the original series. That was her line. And Christian and Slater stole it. <laughs> I was going to ask who that woman was because they clearly featured her. And I think she was in Star Trek 3 also, wasn't she? Like as a person watching the Enterprise come back to dock? She was and she was in part four very briefly with something sticking out of her ear there as well. But going back to Christian Slater there, I thought it was cool back in 1991, and now maybe the people watching this movie may not know who he is. You know, he's <laughs> not as popular as he was in 91. I always thought it was curious. I did think at first it was a fan thing, because why else would he do it? On the other hand, I don't care. It's Christian Slater. Okay, cool. It's a cameo, you know? I mean, I have more fun pointing out the other actors, you know, Kurt Wood-Smith and Rene Abu-Rabu-Ra, but I also thought it was a really fun scene for Sulu, and his reactions to Christian Slater, it was almost like Sula was like, what the f*** are you doing here? It might have been a legit one. Who knows? But I think we're almost saying the same thing from two different vantage points. I almost felt like Christian Slater was hedging his bets and thinking, boy, if cuffs and pump up the volume aren't hits for me, at least I can do a couple conventions to keep myself afloat. I just brought something else up that I think was a good transition here. Sulu's reaction. Sulu was a captain in this movie, and he rocks as a captain. I think he really fits the role there. I, th I think Takai had a blast doing this. And right off the bat, really early in the movie, the ensign on the bridge says, uh, do we call Starfleet about this? And he turns around quickly and says, are you kidding? It was hysterical. It was great. It was perfectly done. And then later in the movie, when he comes back, when he flies the Excelsior really fast to get back to help Kirk, and the thing is shaking, and the people are questioning him, and then when he gets there, and he helps fight the Klingon bird of prey, and he says, target that explosion and fire. All of these moments for Sulu rocked. And I thought, what a great moment for this movie and this series. And that's the kind of stuff I really enjoyed in this movie. And Takai seemed to be pitch perfect in this. Now, Stuart, I know you're a big Sulu fan. What do you have to say about this? 
I could not agree with you more. It was the most satisfying part of the whole movie, and it comes right at the beginning. It's the first scene of the film, and they introduce Sulu has moved on. Yay, Sulu! <laughs> and you're right. It would have been enough for me just to see him in the chair, but he's good in this. He's better than Kirk ever was. And you wish that they had spun him off in a TV show or something than, instead of giving Scott Bakula a gig. I mean, he's good. Let me ask you, Arnie, is there books or comics with Sulu at the helm of the Excelsior? Well, there's a TV episode. I don't know about books or comics, but they did do an episode of Star Trek Voyager, which tells a flashback episode of that Vulcan character you mentioned earlier, where he served on the Excelsior under Sulu when they got to Kai back. I want to talk about quickly Kirk and his reaction to the change and... There was a lot of lines about people in our generation, you know, will have the most difficult time with this change. Kirk's sudden attachment to the son he never knew. You make it sound like Kirk's going through menopause. What about Kirk and the change? Yes, and he's retaining water. Some of the stuff with Kirk there was interesting, but a little, fell a little flat just because of the lack of history with his son. But I did like the idea of the themes of change is going to be hard and we're going to have to get through this together. Kind of like obviously echoing real world politics, but echoing the fact this is the last time they're ever going to be in a Star Trek movie and for the fans as well. I thought that kind of was a theme and I think they played a lot of angles of that theme. And that's another reason I like this movie that they attempted at least to give some more weight to, uh, to the plot and to the story and to the characters for a change. I just think this thing is plotting and boring, really boring. And yeah, all these scenes of it's going to be hard for our generation. Sucks to be old. You know, what do you want me to say? <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it's just sour. And it has this waft of self-hatred and being put out to pasture. And it doesn't feel honorable. It feels like euthanasia. <laughs> You know, wow. I really tried to connect with the characters during that moment with the it will be hard for our generation because I'm starting to broach middle age a little bit. And I started to try to see if I could connect to that in any way. And I couldn't. No, <laughs> nothing there for me to latch on to emotionally. And I really sat there trying to connect to the characters and decided, yeah, you know, change is life. That's it. It may be hard for you, but hmm. Well, here's the thing. And, and Brock, I totally hear where you're coming from because conceptually, all the things that you're saying, I liked too. But I wasn't willing to give this movie based on subtext. It, the subtext cannot carry it because it's no fun. It is no fun as a movie. These speeches you're talking about, they're long, drawn out. They're not done with any clever humor or interplay that we've seen before. I also didn't think there was enough differences between Klingons and humans for you to feel how tough it was. It just They resorted to a lot of stereotypical lines people would say about ethnic groups. It felt like a lot of ethnic humor with all of it being foisted upon this alien race. And I'm like, okay, so they have bad table manners and they have a funny smell and all that. I'm like, guess as someone that never watched the Trek original show, I really wanted to understand why it was that Klingons and the Federation never got along in the first place. This movie does not tell you why that is well if i can agree to that there are a lot of racial lines and i was reading some behind the scenes stuff and that checkoff line which is very famous it was in the trailer and i'm going to try to impersonate and do poorly guess who's coming to dinner <laughs> dracula is that you <laughs> for me to poop on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Well, that was supposed to be Uhura's line because Uhura's black. And Nichelle Nichols refused. And Rock Peters, who played Admiral Cartwright in this movie, he's a very well-known actor. He was into Kill a Mockingbird. Apparently, the director wanted all of Admiral Cartwright's hate speech towards the Klingons in one take, and Cartwright couldn't do it in one take because he had so much trouble speaking these lines because it had such a racial undertone. I, I don't see a specious type of bigotry the same as racism because it's not like they don't like Klingons because they're Klingons. They don't like Klingons because we've been at war and they've brutalized our people. And sure, we may have brutalized theirs back, but it's a different thing. We haven't enslaved the Klingons and now they're free and we don't like it. It's war. And Good point. I don't buy it. Is the bigotry there? Yes. Is the bigotry bad? Yes. Right. It's not just cultural differences. Um, we're talking about a bad blood history. And I guess uh, as, as the newbie here, as someone that doesn't really know a lot about the backstory of Star Trek, I wanted them to tell me why Klingons were so unacceptable up until this point. And I really wanted there to be tension in the scenes where they're having a dinner and trying to get along together. That was such a perfect moment in concept. And then it just ends up being, as the whole movie ends up being, Christopher Plummer reciting Shakespeare. To the point that I just wanted to kill him. <laughs> well, I think that at this point, the next generation's influence is a negative one because the Klingons were a huge part of the next generation. In the first season, there weren't that many stellar episodes, but one that the fans clung to was the one that brought in the Klingons and showed, yeah, we're at peace, but it's not entirely a trusting relationship. And they mined the hell out of that for years. By the time this movie came out, they've gone so much into the Klingon way of life that it's a shorthand now. They expect you to know coming into this movie. And perhaps in your case, that's a bad expectation. And I would argue that's correct. You can't just trust the people to have followed you the whole way to where you are. But that's nonetheless what happened. A lot of the Klingon stuff you see here originated in the next generation and a little bit in the 60s series. I also feel like the movies have never delivered a satisfying Klingon bad guy. I hated General Chang. I thought he was not menacing, not imposing. It, it, some of it is oh, the way Plummer plays it. Some of the way it's the way it's written. And some of it's that it takes too long to find out he's behind it all to begin with. But I just felt like, yet again, we're four movies into showing Klingons, and they've never worked. Well, you know, I don't know if the first time I saw this, I knew Valeris was evil. You told me. I don't remember if I knew that immediately. But come on, how obvious is it Christopher Plummer is in charge of the Klingons who are opposed to this? He oozes it yes. in every scene. He's wearing a freaking eye patch that just says, I'm evil. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I do disagree with you that I dislike the character. Is he a satisfying baddie? No, there isn't a satisfying baddie here. Fact is, though, I thought Plummer turned in a good performance. Yeah, perhaps Nicholas Meyer threw too much Shakespeare at him because it's Christopher Plummer. You know what it felt like? Oh, well, Montauban did so well quoting Moby Dick. Let's get you some classic literature and have you riff on that. And, like, they just didn't stop. I mean, I think he yeah. went through all 36 plays. I'm like, I was expecting <laughs> him to show up and drag, do a little uh, Twelfth Night after he died. I mean, 
it just it felt like, wow, are we going to do everyone? Is he going to fall in love with Kim Cattrall and then they'll kill each other like Romeo and Juliet? I mean, it was absurd. And I also know that the culture was just starting to get into Shakespeare because Kenneth Branagh movies were starting to become popular and Mel Gibson had done a, a Hamlet that had done pretty well. And we were just starting to go through that whole 90s Shakespeare thing. So I guess in that sense, it was cutting edge, but I hated it. I hated it. Well, I really love a couple of the things here. First of all, the referencing of to be or not to be, that goes back to what Brock was saying about the whole, you know, we're, we're not going to be the dealing with age and it's hard for our generation. That one fit. Yep. The cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war, I always thought worked as a great line for a Klingon to shout when heading into battle. I thought that one worked. The rest of it, completely extraneous and, yeah, could have been dumped. Yep. And you guys, remember, you haven't heard Shakespeare until you've heard it in the original Klingon. <laughs> yes. And the that was kind of funny. proverb, only Nixon could go to China. Yeah, but that Shakespeare line was kind of funny. I agree, Stuart. I thought that was pretty funny. I'm not willing to hate on everything. I just like so many things here. What you could have accomplished with one line, one speech, one moment, they just kept hitting it again and again and again. And it was just chipping away at me. By the end of it, I just wanted to run screaming from this movie. And I'll tell you, I was really done with it in the murder revelation because I really feel like... How awesome would it have been to have one of the crew members be the killer? How stunning, how game-changing, what a twist that would be. You would have to replay the whole series in your mind if it had been one of the bridge crew, even Savick. And when they wimped on that, I was done. Yeah, I agree. We mentioned that she's Valeris and they wanted it to be Savick. Do you have anything else on the Savick thing? All I have is Roddenberry said, absolutely not. Kim Cattrall wouldn't take a role that had already been done by two other people. Why didn't Robin Curtis come back? She was so busy. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact is, I think they'd already cast Kim Cattrall. Obviously, Robin Curtis is no great shakes when it comes to a thespian. Didn't they try to approach Kirstie Alley to come back, too, and throw money at her? Hey, I don't care if they get David Warner to play it, but have the damn character (laughs) that we know be the killer. It would have had those early moments between Spock and Valerius mean something. Because Spock, who is supposed to be not emotional, is doing all of this emotive pouring on her about how he's so honored and she's going to continue on in his legacy and this and that. And I'm like, who is this chick? Did anyone else notice he was drinking out of a bong? (laughs) And who can blame him? Stuart, I'm just saying if it was Robin Curtis as Savick, it may not have been as obvious. But if Kirstie Alley came back for the big role in the last Star Trek movie, I'm thinking there has to be a reason she would come back. You ever watch Law and Order and you see, like, you know, um, Claire Danes is on the show? You know she did it because she's Claire Danes. I don't know if I agree with that. What I can say is there's one reason and one reason only Kirstie Alley should have come back, and that's because Kim Cattrall can't act. (laughs) And let's remind the audience, this is not the Kim Cattrall of Sex and the City a decade later. At this point, she was five years out from doing a movie about being a romantic object as a mannequin. She did the first Police Academy, some bomb called Turk 182 I saw nine times on cable as a kid, and this movie. (laughs) Yeah, and I wouldn't want it to be the Kim Cattrall from Sex and the City either. That would just be creepy (laughs) to have this cougar Vulcan. But... (laughs) (laughs) I just, yeah, I think the Vulcans are supposed to have that kind of deadpan delivery. And she came off like a piece of cardboard. I take it back. I'm sorry for insulting the cardboard cut up I had of Leonard Nimoy in my basement when this movie came out. (laughs) Wow. 
Brock, you don't agree? You thought she was uh, acceptable? Uh, no, I just said wow to Arnie having a cardboard cutout of Leonard Nimoy in his basement. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end when Valeris is outed and they rush back to Earth and they are saving the Federation president from the assassination of the Klingon, did anyone else notice that they beam in on the first floor and they send Scotty up the <laughs> stairs? Why? Oh, why? And I do not want to make fat jokes. I do not want to attack Scotty for letting it go. Whatever, man. You can do whatever you want. But why would you send him of any of them to do the legwork? I know he had to have something, but uh, that was wasn't it that wasn't it you know i think there's a lot of people who make jokes about shatner being fat but in all of these movies i'm find myself kind of shocked at how trim both he and nimoy stay are they you know 60s trim no but they're still mostly fit yeah i i think that deserves to be said a lot of people make fun of shatner's gut and his hair well you can make fun of his hair because these are some obvious toupees in all six of these films but his gut doesn't go you know until much later although i gotta say i still don't buy it when he does that giant leap across the convention era did you guys laugh at that scene? He's like literally flying through the air, arms spread out, and knocking the president down before the assassin takes him out. This is why we had to get rid of the old cast. They are not capable of convincing us that they can do these moments, and it is awkward and silly when they have to. Here's what I thought. Here's what I'm seeing in my view watching this movie in the movie at the time. An escaped felon is charging at the president. Shoot, (laughs) shoot, shoot. (laughs) To close out, there's something we've talked about on a lot of these shows I feel needs to be talked about here, and that is the score of the movie. Yes, thank you. When opening this movie, I wrote in my notes, it sounded like they were aping the Dracula theme from the early 90s Dracula movie. The score here was unimpressive. It was the least impressive score of all six movies. I got a sense that they were trying to go for the brooding, not the big circle. Circus Danny Elfman numbers, but some of the brooding uh, underscoring done in Tim Burton's Batman, mm. which had been a big hit this summer that Star Trek V came out, and that they were trying to do this ominous, very gothic, uh, Wagner kind of thing to fit in the mood with this somber murder mystery thing. I guess I didn't like the vibe, and the music is part of that vibe. I heard Russian in it. Not obvious as the Tetris music from the other episode, but I heard more of Hunt for October stuff in there. Sure, yeah. But not completely obvious, but the tones of it. Yeah, if there would have ever been a time to really go retro with the score, this last hurrah would have been it. Agreed. And what they gave me, especially during that opening credits, just, you know what? The opening credit music, to me, signifies the entire movie. Slow and dull. Mm, agreed. So I guess that's a good place to wrap it up. So, Arnie, Stuart, do you recommend Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country? Stuart. I recommend that you spend time with your grandfather if you still have some. <laughs> they have them. Just listen to him. Let him ramble on and on. Tell him you love him, and you will have a more meaningful experience than you will watching this. <laughs> Arnie. I really can't recommend this movie, and it's one where... I can look at it and I can see what they tried to do. And I think it is an honorable send off to a cast. And it really kind of hurts me to say I don't recommend it because I want to recommend their last hurrah. I want to say they went out on top, but they didn't. And it's not the worst of the movies. That would be either one or five, but it's not fun to watch. 
I liked one better than this one, Arnie. I don't think this one is any more fun than number one. I'm not going to split that hair. Okay. I just feel like this one was a little bit more true to the crew than part one. But it's just not a fun movie to watch. That's the only reason I don't recommend it. I think it, with the exception of the CGI, was well made. I think that it gave the characters good moments. But in the end, I was bored. This movie couldn't end quickly enough. There was so much talky, talky, talky that nothing happened. And when we finally got to the end climax, I was lost. They'd lost me. It was gone. And I'm going to be the sole person to say I recommend it. I had a good time with it. I thought it moved. I actually got into the plot of it. They got me in, and I stayed with it. I am completely aware that it is a lightweight murder mystery. I am completely aware of all the faults of the movie. But overall, I did have a good time. And the good moments in this movie are, for me, really fun moments, like the one with Sulu and Kirk blasting that chip out of the sky. I like the politics parts. I like the little action we did get, but I like the character stuff a lot too. I like this movie. I recommend it, but I completely understand its flaws. If you enjoyed this review, please come to Now Playing at www.nowplayingpodcast.com and download our other Star Trek reviews. We'll have a new Star Trek review every Friday until the release of the new J.J. Abrams movie coming out in May 2009. And it can't come soon enough. These trailers keep looking better. It looks great. Yeah, they do. They do. I hate to have high expectations, but yeah. So I want to thank Stuart and Arnie for joining me today. Thanks, guys. You bet. Happy to be here. And we will boldly go where no one has gone before when we join the Next Generation cast for their first film in Star Trek Generations in our next episode. Live long and prosper. Space. The final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the starship Enterprise. Their ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Look Back at all of the films in the Star Trek series. Be sure to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com every Friday from now until the release of the new movie May 8th for a new installment in our Trek retrospective. Star Trek and all the Star Trek universe contains is copyright and trademark Paramount Pictures, all rights reserved. Now Playing is not affiliated with Paramount Pictures. Gentlemen, your work today has been outstanding. I tend to recommend you all for promotion in whatever fleet we end up serving. Now Playing is a production of Inganza Media Incorporated, copyright 2009, all rights reserved. Yes, that's exactly what he was thinking. And now after oh. my secret identity flopped, he has to. But My own worst enemy. Oh, my own worst enemy. Yeah, my secret what identity was again, Chris O'Donnell. There's a blooper for you. <laughs> Long and prosper. Dude. <laughs> Keep adding dude in there every time. And no one all says right, that's dude the show. in this world. But all right. But am I saying dude like live long and prosper, dude? Or am I saying dude like word? Mm, like a can of dude. Yeah.